0: Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And you're listening to yet another episode with yet another special guest. Joining us today is Maria Bergren, who is special to this podcast and this household because she is Sally's sister. So and a
1: longtime dedicated listener.
0: Longtime listener. First time guest, longtime listener. Maria, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, by way of introduction, Maria is a recent college graduate and decided to uh, dip her toe into the waters of classical education by taking a, a room full of first and second graders and uh shepherding Yikes. them through the uh fundamentals of uh the western tradition so that's a bold move maria how's it going for you so far
2: it's going very well it's a lot of fun and i think it, it definitely gets better each week yeah so first time teaching so the first three weeks are very tiring but it's 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 fun
0: well, and I feel like, the, I mean, kind of like my friends who are you know, going to grad school or something, I have a friend who started business school this semester, it's probably an especially hard time to be starting a new thing now, given all of the COVID stuff. And I don't even know what your school situation is. I know you're, you're obviously doing in-person classes, but just mm-hmm. lots of different protocols, I imagine, to stick to and things that you have to adjust yeah. to that you wouldn't have to normally account for as a first-year teacher.
2: Totally. Yeah. Yep.
0: Well, good. I'm glad that the first and second graders have not run you too ragged yet. You, you, you sound (laughs) chipper. You look chipper. So, thanks for joining us tonight. But we will, uh, we'll get the show on the road so that you can uh, get your sleep to to lead those first and second graders tomorrow.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Very (laughs) early bedtime.
1: (laughs) Oh, we do not look down on early bedtime. (laughs) No, definitely not. In fact,
0: in fact, just the other day. So, I tend to stay up late. Uh, Not because I'm like by nature a night owl, although I think I've become more like that recently just because I really value the quiet time of night and the time that I have to read and to just do things that I enjoy. And it's just so hard for me to reach that point in the evening where I say, like, I need to go to bed because I'm going to regret it tomorrow morning if I don't, because I won't have enough sleep. Sally, on the other hand, is very good at doing that. So, you know, comparatively very early is a, is a, you know, Sally goes to bed very early compared to me. And, uh, and she gets up earlier because she does that. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just telling Sally the other day that I need to get better at being like, okay, I need to go to bed at this time, period, dot, no ifs, ands, or buts. And at I'll, least I'll certain days the of the
1: week when it's really important to you to wake up
0: early. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think like just establishing the routine is good. So sure, probably should yeah. be should be more days of the week. But it's always like, okay, I'll start that tomorrow night. <laughs> tomorrow (laughs) night i'll go to bed early (laughs) (laughs) you did it a couple times this week so far i did yeah but not last night so (laughs) (laughs) all right well anyway uh so maria you and i read an article uh the same article a few months back and this was something that was written uh, a few months into the covid pandemic by a man named matthew crawford and for our listeners who are not familiar with the work of mr crawford he's really an interesting guy He is uh, a philosopher and a motorcycle mechanic and has written about exactly the intersection of those two things. His first book is called Shop Class as Soulcraft, An Inquiry into the Value of Work. Yeah. All about how uh, work can be redemptive and work has inherent value and how he as a philosopher has found uh, redemptive work. Uh, And work
1: is in like manual labor, using your hands.
0: Right. Yeah. And so he's very very interested in... um, in our place in the world, and how what we do with our bodies um, sort of conditions us or fulfills what we're supposed to be doing, fulfills the telos of the human person. Uh, his second book is The World Beyond Your Head on Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction. So, uh, and that was in 2015. So now I think it's very kind of like passe to talk about being distracted and on your devices all the time. 2015, maybe it was a little, like a little bit more on the sort of leading edge of that, that kind of work. And then his most recent book that Sally was just telling me about today is called Why We Drive toward a philosophy of the open road. And as, and as I understand it from you, Sally, it's about self-driving cars
1: in part, a response to that technology. Yeah. And what we would lose as a human being, as human beings, if we just move over completely into the self-driving driverless car model.
0: This is an interesting question. So I like driving. I don't like driving all the time. And, um, Marie, I don't know how you feel like living in a in a place in Michigan where you probably, I think you're you know, three hours away from ex- some extended family. So you probably do some long drives. I mean, my vantage point is I like sometimes like just going on a drive at night, clear the head, whatever, going on a drive in the mountains here in Colorado. But what I don't like is hopping on the road for four hours. So to me, the ideal is having the option of, of, you know, autonomous driving. So you can like hit the switch and then read a book while you're on a long trip, but not having that like totally usurp and supplant the visceral experience of feeling the, feeling the wheel and leaning into turns and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you would say that if we, if we can't really have it halfway, that if we give over into the autonomous driving that uh, for the sake of safety or convenience, whatever your primary goal would be, that we would kind of lose some confidence and competency in driving. And so we wouldn't really be able to go back because that's part of his argument too, from what I understand it. But again, I haven't read the book and we really should get him on the podcast to uh, make his argument. That would be interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get the book and read the book first that, no, before that, we that's also, on it. That's also then, a good thing to do. And then have him on. <laughs> Maria, what's your gut tell you? Uh, what's our What should our philosophy of the open road be? Should we have driverless cars or should we just rely on manual control? <laughs> without having well, read this book he,
2: <laughs> right uh, yes uh, um it, it just reminds me of i mean with every car with every new car that comes out they have all these safety features True. you know like Then yeah. you know, they and they they show those in commercials uh, so that when you get in the car you think oh i'm invincible and there's you know i there's nothing that can go wrong because this car is great and it's built wonderfully and um, it's not gonna I'm I'm not gonna get in a wreck or anything. So I think people drive carelessly um when they have almost like too much confidence in the vehicle, um and are not actually focusing on driving well. Um, so I mean I don't I mean I don't even understand the concept of driverless cars. Like how could how how do how does that how does that work without you driving?
1: It's the technology, the AI,
0: right? Uh yeah, exactly. And I don't I mean it's not like not like deep ai but um well i guess it could be deep ai but in in most cases it's not that but basically the car is arrayed with a ton of different sensors that are able to perceive space around it and perceive things like traffic lights and lines in the road uh you know uh, use gps to geolocate etc um and to navigate and it you know, com- combine through all these things. It's able to autonomously control, but you raise an interesting point, Maria. I was watching a football game a couple of days ago and I saw a commercial, I think it was for a Hyundai car. And this car is going down the road and there's a bunch of people in the car. They look like teenagers and they're like, you know, trying to get a Insta or a Snapchat or something. And they're like posing for the selfie and it's very dangerous. And the driver gets in on the action too. So she gets distracted and her car starts to stray out of the lane. Ooh, but, but, because, oh, the car drives because you back that onto car the, had lane oh. assist technology, just nudged her back into the lane.
1: So it just says, it's okay if you're distracted while driving, Yeah, because basically, the car so, will take care of you. Exactly.
0: So, that so was it just, relates to his
1: second book, The Age of Distraction. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So we really need to get Matthew on the dissect that commercial. No, but uh, it just made me think of what you were saying, Maria, right? Because the message of that commercial is not, hey, focus on the road and focus on driving well. The message is rather, hey, buy this car so that you can take um, selfies in our <laughs> car and co- be totally passengers. safe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we're, we're not talking about driverless cars today. But, uh, we but it's are a
1: good example.
0: Of safetyism. Of,
1: exactly. This ideology that Matthew Crawford is opposed to.
0: Exactly. And so, um, Sally, what's this article by Matthew Crawford all about?
1: <laughs> well, I... I, the the premise is that there's this ideology of safetyism that pervades our society now that creates a kind of what he calls a feedback loop where the safer we become, the, less, the more risk averse we are and the less risk is allowed. And we can see this in different examples. Um, in the article, he kind of goes into eventually uh, the kind of bureaucracy and expert authority and how all authorities are now we're all, we're sus- we're suspicious of all authorities, um, which is interesting. But I think the more interesting point is just that that underlying ideology of safetyism and how we're seeing this more and more throughout our society. He started writing his book about driverless cars before COVID, but we can see this front and center in in mask wearing, for instance, and our approach to COVID. That the safer we become, whether it's through masks or whatever precautions we're taking with COVID. The less, the less uh, risk we will allow in our in our health.
0: Now, Sally, are you saying that COVID is all a hoax? <laughs>
1: I think he might be saying no, I don't think he's saying that. No. But he is suspicious of certain authorities who have reason to play up the safety concerns and the risks associated with COVID.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and I mean I, I think I largely agree with what he says here. He probably words some things more strongly than I would if I were writing this piece. But the takeaway is not we are all uh, you know, unwitting uh pawns in a massive government conspiracy to you know, perpet, you know, hoist, hoist, this COVID hoax upon us, et cetera. No one's denying that the pandemic is real. No one's denying that the pandemic is dangerous, that it has Correct. killed hundreds of thousands of people, et cetera.
1: In fact, the danger is actually an important thing to focus on because he's saying life is full of dangers. It's, we have to decide how much risk we're okay with and and be willing to embrace some some danger and some risk in our lives because that's what is part of what makes us human.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But let, let me read just to kind of, kind of acquit, him for, acquit him of this charge of being a COVID hoaxer. Um, this is from a paragraph in his piece. He says, a pandemic is a deadly serious business. So again, he's not downplaying this at all. But we would do well to remember that bureaucracies have their own interests quite apart from the public interest that is their official brief and warrant. They are very much in the business of tending and feeding the narratives that justify their existence. Further, given the way bureaucracies must compete for funding from the legislature, each must make a maximal case for the urgency of its mission, hence the necessity of its expansion, like a shark that must keep moving or die. It is clearer now than it was a few months ago that this imperative of expansion puts government authority in symbiosis with the morality of safetyism, which similarly admits no limit to its expanding imperium. The result is a moral epistemic apparatus in which experts are to rule over citizens conceived as fragile incompetence, right? So his, there, there's a few contentions there. One is that the pandemic is deadly serious. So he's not denying that two is that we see individuals and organizations act in their own interests, And this is a long established concept in the field of behavioral psychology and organizational um, uh, organizational leadership and psychology and that is as simple as this bureaucracy wants to perpetuate its, its existence because its employees want to keep their jobs, uh, and fundamentally, the the organization uh, reflects the will of its employees in growing in power and influence, and so it tends to, um, you know, want to stick its fingers uh, in in Chile that's not it's not its own and and uh, get involved in things that it shouldn't get involved in, and then his third contention is that that impulse happens to coincide very, very well with this new morality of safetyism, as he calls it, in which the value of safety is elevated above everything else. Uh, that is the now the highest good, right? And so Sally and I have talked about this on the podcast before, right? But death is actually not the worst possible thing that can happen to a human being. And safetyism, I think, says, no, death is actually the very worst thing that can happen. And so if death is the worst, then what must be the best? The best must be not death, and the thing that most prevents death or most keeps us from death must must then be uh, in the sort of order of moral acts, the highest of all things. Right. So we have to, to attain that. Um, so that's that's basically the thrust of his piece, um, arguing against this new safetyism, because because his his contention and we can talk more about sort of his alternative view. His contention is that safety is not the highest good. That safety can be a good. It can be a public good, a collective good. It should be a good. Uh, and it's an important thing, but it is not something that should be sacrificed for all other goods. Maria, what did you think reading this piece? Because a couple months ago, we we both kind of compared notes a little bit. We didn't talk too much about it, but there's a lot to digest here, and you're our guest, but I haven't heard heard you talk about it very much. Sally and I have mostly, mostly been setting the stage. So tell me what you think as you were kind of digesting this piece uh, and what you think of his central thesis. So I first... Uh...
2: I first read this article actually after our headmaster at school, Jack Hummel. He emailed it to all the teachers, and he told us a story about last year. There was a a student who was client. He loved to climb trees, and he climbed a tree very very high. And in and and in our our and, and Jack said he had in his email to us. He said instead of freaking out and frantically calling the kid down and then scolding him for doing something risky. He, they, they asked him to, to come down to a, a, a more reasonable height on the tree. And then he said, Oh, cool. You know, that's, that's great that you love climbing trees. That's great that you love to be out in nature. There's, there's something so wonderful about that yet. We, we, you know, we don't want you to, to we're not going to encourage you to fall out of the tree or something like that but we do want to encourage students to take risks and we want to challenge people. Um, so that's, so that's how I first read it. Um, well that's when I first read it and that's, um, and, and reading that. Yeah. I mean, I just, as, as I was reading, uh, reading the article, it reminded me of, um, a book that I read this summer called the coddling of the American mind, um, by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt, And, um, uh, and that 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 had a lot of, of the similar themes, and just like thinking about safetyism, and uh, uh, yeah, reading about it, it just I, I see it I see it very pervasive in our culture right now, um, and uh, and even even uh, I, I watched um, uh, the rise of Jordan Peterson. It's a documentary about Jordan Peterson, and uh, and we even see this kind of in like the idea of the cancel culture. And that if people people don't want to hear um, what you have to say, they can just cancel you, and they're they're scared. Um, they're scared of being in a, a risky situation. Um, and uh, and I think I think I think risks and challenges are actually good. So I, I would agree that safety is not the the highest good.
0: So then I think the the question that I would have and I would pose to Matthew and to anyone who's endorsing or defending his thesis is what is the highest good? Because if we can agree that safety is not the highest good, and I certainly agree with that, then what does become the highest good? And this becomes a very practical question that has policy implications when we think, okay, if we are not going to put safety above all else for the good of our collective community, we need to put something above the good of all else, right? And you know, just to, to use a frivolous example that I'm, that I'm confident is not the answer, Right, I wouldn't say that like having people well fed and satiated is the highest good, right? And so, to me, it is reasonable probably to put some restrictions on like restaurants in the middle of a pandemic because uh, I would say that you know the good of public safety is higher than the good of uh, people eating you know burritos or burgers or whatever when they when they want to do that, right? And now, I'm not I'm not arguing for a blanket lockdown necessarily. And I think like you have to weigh these things um, in a very real sense from a public health perspective and. Uh, from an economic perspective, but what is the highest good? If we're stepping back and sort of abstracting this now from the policy questions, what is the highest good for a society to pursue if it's not safety?
1: So I think that's a really hard question and I wonder if the question should be more what, because you could have an array of goods that I think are higher than safety. And so I think you would want to ask do the, what goods contribute to the flourishing of the human person? And he would say the human spirit, the protection and defense of the human spirit, um, because because his his argument is that safety, that the value of safety comes in tension and actually endangers the human spirit. It comes in tension with the one of the goods that he mentions, which is play.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm sure
1: you wouldn't say play is the highest good that we should all sure. pursue above all else. But if it's one good that contributes to the flourishing of the human person, and safety is is lower than that, or maybe not even a good that contributes to the, to the flourishing of the human person. Um, I don't know if you would say that, but then I think that we need to prioritize play over safety.
2: I think, I mean, I think that the, what is even higher than, than safety is knowing truth. And I mean, I, I think of, I think of just what I would want for my, for my own kids in the future. And that is to learn to to learn when they're learning how to ride a bike to fall off and to get hurt and to not. I I don't want to coddle them. I don't want to keep them from knowing the truth about about the evil in the world. I want to tell them that. And I think that that will um, ultimately make them stronger, ultimately make them um, more compassionate and more courageous people. To know that there are things that we have to fight in this world, um, so truth and knowing what what this what the the good and the evil in the world, and then um, then just forming forming their characters, forming their hearts and their minds, um, and you have to you have to stretch them and you have to you and they have to take risks in order to to have properly formed hearts and minds. Um, so I think we should welcome those things and encourage them and, and 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 help children to take responsibility rather than rather than just wanting them to be safe all the time. So I think what's higher than safety is ultimately truth and good character and um uh and and uh, compassion for other people and and love.
1: And I think there to defend that you would have to say that safety is somehow in tension with those values. Um, Which I think people who would promote the idea of safetyism, however you see that in parenting, in education, in our response to COVID, in um, motor sports and risky adventure sports, uh, would say that you could still learn those values while also being safe. But I think somehow you have to make an argument for the experiencing of them and actually taking risk upon yourself as being more human than learning about the world from a from a place of safety.
0: Yeah, let me let I mean, me su- suggest something that might kind of help us. I guess shift the focus a little bit in this conversation. So when I talk about the philosophy of science with this uh, class that I'm teaching now, I talk about what science is for, what science was originally developed for. And then I contrast like the proper telos, the proper end of science, the proper application of science with what we call scientism. And by scientism, I mean a philosophy of science that basically abuses the place of science that tries to elevate the natural sciences uh, far beyond (laughs) what they are supposed to achieve, tries to use science to answer questions that it cannot answer because it was never designed to answer. Um, And that's scientism. So if we kind of uh, kind of apply the same lens to safety versus safetyism, safety is about properly situating the good of safety um, within or over and against perhaps some other competing goods. Sally, I liked your term of of an array of goods, right? We should pursue character. We should pursue truth. We should pursue love, all those things. We should also probably have a healthy approach that um, factors in safety to what we should do. I think to not do that would be to just act recklessly all the time. And we don't want to act recklessly, right? But safetyism is a, is an approach to safety or an application of safety that really kind of abuses its, its place and then elevates safety to do something that it was never meant to do. And so I think we have to ask the question of what is safety meant to do? And I think safety is meant to um, sort of modulate the human spirit because the human spirit can sometimes tend towards recklessness Um, you know, like I was on a mountain bike the other day going very, very fast down a hill and it could have ended poorly for me, except I have this thing called the developed frontal lobe that helped me realize like, this is probably not a great idea to be, you know, careening recklessly down this hill. So you tap the brakes and you slow down a little bit. Um, so safety is a thing that sort of modulates our, our enjoyments or our pursuit of other things in life, other goods in life. But safetyism is the thing that says, no, I won't even go mountain biking because I could get hurt. Right. And I think that's the distortion that that we need to talk about. So I think that's what Crawford's piece is getting at. Um, and, and then, so the question becomes: like, how do you how do you properly balance safety in a pandemic? Because he's not saying, I'm not saying, we're not saying. Uh, very few, if any, people are saying we should just have total disregard for safety at all times and in all places, and especially in a pandemic. No, as Crawford says, a pandemic is deadly serious business. But how do we balance the good of safety? versus all of these other, this array of goods that, that Sally, you talked about.
1: I'm not sure I know how to answer that exactly. (laughs) Um, I do think that we can see if we focus too much on safety, how it makes us sacrifice things like risk and play and, um, human mobility and experience. Uh, but, I, but I don't, I don't know what the right answer is.
0: No, I mean, that's okay. I don't think it's necessarily like a, it's not a formula, certainly. Right. But, but Crawford mentioned several stories in his article that resonate with me. He says he recently moved to California. California's government has been um, very, very strict in applying lockdown measures um, and other public health measures to try to, to contain the spread of um, COVID-19 and he tells a story of going hiking one day and uh, learning that the trail had been um, uh, cut off for bikers not hikers right because the it's a very savvy virus that actually only spreads if you're on a (laughs) two-wheel machine Uh, but so he's 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 highlighting things like that 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 are sort of arbitrary um, applications of state power to pursue this new safetyism uh, and I think he's right to do that. I think that we we are right to call out our bureaucrats uh, who are not actually acting in the best interest of the people uh, and and abusing their office for that reason or in that way. I mean, the, the best analog that I can give is in the first probably two months of the pandemic, the Colorado Department of Public Health... Um, thought it appropriate to use, uh, use their resources to send people to our playgrounds that are kind of positioned throughout our neighborhood and string up caution tape all over the playgrounds despite any scientific suggestion uh, that the virus spread um, in outdoor, well-ventilated, sunny environments. Colorado, of course, being one of the most sunny states in the entire United States. Uh, But no, actually, what what you know, the the, what the bureaucrats from on high thought was best for for my children was if they had to stay inside (laughs) away from sunlight, not getting their natural vitamin D, not playing outside with their friends, uh, but actually staying off the playground Um, and some brave soul kept um, kept cutting the caution tape. And then we would go and play on the playground. And it was great. <laughs> and then the next morning caution would be it, back up. It, it kept coming back. So yeah, so the Department of Public Health kept sending and they kept sending uh agents of the state to like inspect these playgrounds and make sure the kids were staying off the playgrounds. And it was one of the most absurd applications of state power to me. <laughs> right? To me, that's evidence of safetyism. It would not, for example, be evidence of safetyism to marshal the full resources of the state to make sure that hospitals had all of the PPE equipment, you know, that's that's redundant, the PPE they need to protect their personnel, you know, things like hospital gowns and hospital masks. It would not be um, an overreach of state authority to... Uh, you know, to invest uh, early and often in vaccine research and give grants to all researchers who are working on finding therapeutic methods of attacking this stuff. That is not safetyism to me, but safetyism is these bureaucrats who cut off hiking and biking trails and, and string up caution tape literally on children's playgrounds and then come back every two days to make sure it's still there. That to me is safetyism. And it's totally absurd.
1: Yeah, a non-bureaucratic example is all the people on our walking path in our neighborhood who who let us know when our children are doing something potentially <laughs> risky. Like not staying under our thumb every single moment of of the walk or straying off on their own or Yeah,
0: do these people realize that running. like a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know, our children could have walked like two miles to and from school every Lord day.
1: Lauren Mary did in, yeah. Lord, in Little House on the Prairie. I actually mentioned that to someone so one time. I was like, I mean, they can't walk to two miles to school in the in the rain anymore, so I gotta let them grow up somehow.
0: <laughs> Maria, do you have any great stories uh, from first year teaching or just living in Michigan? I know the, um, the Michigan State authorities have also been been pretty, uh, what I would call aggressive in heading off things at the pass.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, right now they're in, in Michigan Um, there's a there's a law um, that that enables our governor to basically keep the state of emergency going for indefinitely. She recently set out an executive order about all public schools that they have to all students and teachers have to wear masks at all times. Um, And even though I mean, yeah, even though just the research is is not is not necessarily clear whether kids do spread the virus or whether masks do help. Um, so 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 at least in in, in our little private school, um, uh, we we have a lot of classes outside um, and we eat lunches outside um, and we uh, we do have to have to sanitize everything and keep everything extra clean. Um, uh, so we we are definitely putting precautions into place. Um, but we also we also want to want to recognize that we're not going to stop school all altogether um, just just to stop the pandemic. We want we are prioritizing school and learning over um, over the pandemic. Um, so,
0: yeah, that totally makes sense. Sally and I did an episode of Vernacular at the beginning of the pandemic that was called Love in the Time of Corona. And we talked about how one of the one of the silver linings of this pandemic may be that we are prepared for the big one if, and when it does come. And it probably is a question of when and not if, but um, you know, when sort of situated against the great pandemics of world history, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 is a really paltry virus, just as far as like number of, number of people who are affected by it, infected by it, killed by it. Certainly, uh, which is not at all to downplay the people who downplay the deaths that have occurred, the people who have died, lost loved ones, et cetera. I'm not trying to do that, but um it is interesting to wonder, like if if this is how the world has reacted, I mean, you you just said right now, Maria, indefinite state of emergency in Michigan. No sign of when the governor will let up on that. If that's how we react to this, imagine if there was a disease out there that had a death rate more like the bubonic plague. Or I just read this great novel by Lawrence Wright that was very timely and oddly prescient called End of October. It just came out in March and it was about a global pandemic. Uh, I think the death rate, the IFR, the in infection fatality rate in that was something around 10 to 20%. Um, whereas the IFR for um, SARS-CoV-2, uh, what we're experiencing now is about 0.1 to 0.18%. Um, so just imagine like, imagine the chaos that we would see there. I mean, if, if our public health institutions um react so strongly to this imagine that and i think then we're looking at like literally an end of the world end of civilized society as we know it type of scenario which is a very scary thought so i hope that this has sort of given us some perspective but i don't know if that's the case Uh, i mean sally when you mentioned people going on walks uh, i thought you were going to talk about people who outdoors on a breezy day within 10 feet of us or even more 30 feet of us raise their their cloth mask to their faces. And I'm just like, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Do you, I don't even think you have any idea of like what the mechanism of transmission for this thing. Uh, because if you did, you wouldn't be putting your mask up 30 feet away from someone while outdoors. This is so silly, but this is, I think the new kind of safetyism that people are coming to regard.
1: Well, and if Matthew's right, then it's this loop, right? This, the, the safer we become or the, the more we master the protocols of safety, the less, where we allow the less risk we allow in our lives. And so, I don't know if it necessarily gives us perspective to practice safety protocols, it just makes us want to be more and more safe. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to ask like what do we lose? And Matthew Crawford talked about we it endangers the human spirit somehow. And specifically, I think safety like an ideology of safetyism encourages us to to look towards convenience and security and um, and I think ease comfort um, yeah. along with safety and and so we lose then the the opportunity to pursue greatness and to pursue excellence because those things necessarily involve some sort of risk I don't think we can we can excel in whatever we're trying to do without some level of risk
0: yeah I think that's right and it makes me think about what you were saying Maria about how you need to pursue character and virtue and strength. And how do you pursue those things without some level of adversity now?
1: Yeah, some sort uh, of sharpening. Yeah, I I, I don't
0: want listeners to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that like it's impossible to learn virtue unless you disregard the danger of a pandemic, right? But the, I think like the impulse that we've seen during the pandemic to just avoid any risk whatsoever is concerning. Here's another concrete example. So um, Sally and I know someone um, who runs a, prayer ministry at a chapel. And this person um, directed everyone who was in the chapel at all times to wear a mask. This was pretty early on in the days of the pandemic. I think it was probably April or May. And, uh, and this person then suggested that that the masks would actually remain even after the pandemic was over because masks also help to cut down the risk of other disease transmissions, right? Uh, so for example, seasonal flu, right? Wearing, wearing masks in this chapel all the time around other people might just help everyone stay healthy from seasonal flu. Um, now I'm all in favor of helping people stay healthy and strong and not unnecessarily endangering our neighbors. That is all. That is all good. But I think at some point we have to recognize that there are some risks that we have to simply assume and manage responsibly and that that responsible management doesn't look like, you know, covering up our faces all the time, right? Like we are embodied souls. I think we're not supposed to have our faces covered all the time when we're talking to each other and interacting with each other. Uh, certainly not eating, because it's simply impossible, right? So there are, there are practical realities and, and sort of philosophical um, considerations to, to argue that we should not not have our faces covered all the time. Now, should we have it covered in a, in a pandemic? I mean, uh, sure, like when the pandemic is really severe and that is actually our one of our best methods of stopping the spread. But, you know, to suggest that we need to keep doing the mask thing just to prevent the spread of like seasonal influenza when the pandemic is done is totally ridiculous. Um, and I think, again, evidence of this kind of new safety and that's that's all pervasive. And I wonder, Crawford doesn't go into this in his piece, but you know, when I've I've thought about this and talked about this with other people, friends of mine, I've wondered if part of this is just a complete inability for us to wrestle with the reality of death and mortality as we see it. And if if we embrace the new safetyism because we do consciously or unconsciously believe that the very worst thing that can happen to me is death. Um, and to do that is, uh, you know, is to buy into the new safetyism. I think to go back to our, to my original question, right about like what goods are worth pursuing, um, Uh, shall I really like your idea of the array of goods, right? But you know, human flourishing is, is fundamental to that, right? Those, those, that array of goods. They have to
1: contribute to human flourishing. Right,
0: exactly. So, um, safety can certainly contribute to human flourishing. Safetyism not so much, right? Um, uh, good food can contribute to human flourishing, right? Just like enjoying and sort of satiating the appetitive desires and in moderated and responsible ways can contribute to human flourishing. Um, building up virtue and bravery, um, courage, exercising charity, um, you know, daring greatly and sometimes failing greatly, all of that can Play contribute. Play and
1: enjoyment. Yeah.
0: All of that can contribute to human flourishing. And if we, if we abuse one of those at the expense of all others, we, um, we do poorly. I think in that framework, then the greatest tragedy is not to die right? But rather that point of view looks at death as an inevitability. It's a question of when and not if for everyone. So the greatest tragedy is not to die, because in fact, that's going to happen to every single one of us. But the greatest tragedy is to not have lived well. Right. And so from that vantage point, that's the problem of safetyism is that when we place safety above everything else, right, uh, it impacts our desire to live well. I think that's the human spirit issue idea that Matthew Crawford is talking about. So from my vantage point, I think from our vantage point here in this conversation, the greatest tragedy is to not have lived well. And from an eternal standpoint, I mean, the greatest tragedy is to not become a saint. But how do you become a saint? You live well, right? Because part of living well is, is fulfilling human purpose. Part of the human purpose is to love and to serve God. So it all, it all comes together. But the greatest tragedy is to not have lived well rather than to have died because that happens to everyone.
1: Well, then I think that can be a guiding principle or should be the guiding principle when we're evaluating the protocols of safety that are sent down from on high, from our expert authorities, from our public health authorities. Is this measure, whatever that measure is, helping me to live a better life? Is it helping me to be more human in my relationships with others, in my own personal activities? And if the answer is no, then I think we need to think seriously about whether or not we're going to 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 follow those 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 suggest those recommended or required safety protocols.
0: Or if we're a bureaucrat, right, figure out whether or not it's worth recommending those protocols. Right. right? right. Like is is it a good thing to do that? Is as you know, as we balance these things and not just pursue safety above all else, um, what is going to best enable human flourishing? And again, not saying like Safety is not a good thing. Not saying that public health measures are not required during a pandemic; they of course are. And we're not saying that like masks or that should not shouldn't be worn. that we shouldn't
1: care or... about our neighbor. Right. We should.
0: Of course, yeah, of course, of course. But the idea is right. These things have to be balanced against the array of goods that you mentioned, Sally, um, in pursuit of, of the good life. The good life. There we go. Eudaimonia. <laughs> All right. Did we miss anything, Sally?
1: Oh, I'm sure we did. But that's why we need to get Matthew Crawford on the show.
0: For sure. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on. To our guests, reach out to Sally and I. We probably missed a lot of stuff you might disagree or agree. It's totally fine. We'd love to hear you, hear from you. So Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. If you have a comment for Maria and want to get in touch, we can certainly forward that on to her as well. So Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know that- I'm by